cliffcentral.com. Nando's are the people who bring you the burning platform every single week. It's your chance to catch up on what's going on in the world, what's going on in politics, what's going on in society. And I know you want to talk about Jacob Zuma, and we'll get to him in a moment. We've got Sipo Shezi joining us in just a short while. I'm delighted to welcome him to the show. Yes, please. Gareth, I'm yes. just going to go off and like and, and get him on and, and talk see to if he's no having problem. trouble. Well, I'm going yeah. to start talking with, with Jamie, if you don't mind. So I'm going to get on to that. So... Let's get to Mighty Jamie, who I know has quite a lot to say about Iswatini, something we spoke about just a little bit earlier with J.J. Cornish. And uh, you are as as uh, interested in this story as just about anyone, Jamie. And I'm sorry that it seems to me that there are a lot of people who are uh, just pretending that this is not happening right next door to us. I'm just trying to get you on the screen. I don't know why it's not working suddenly. Um, let's see if we can get uh, Jamie on here. Um, just in case you don't know already, Mighty Jamie is a multi-award winning international debating and public speaking champion and a coach. And he is also a guy who wants to talk to us this morning about Becky Taylor and a bunch of other things. But we're going to speak principally about what's going on in the world of uh, Swaziland, Swatini, and find out what he thinks of that. So we'll speak to Jamie in a minute. Of course, we've got the Zuma story to talk about, and that is where Sipo Shezi will be talking uh, with us a bit later. We'll speak about Carl Niehaus being banned, if, if that matters to anybody. We'll speak a little bit about what this means for the ANC, what they have to say, what they don't have to say, why Cyril has been so quiet, perhaps, because people are looking to him for something on this, you know. Uh, the Jacob Zuma Foundation has been addressing all of us as if that still is the main organ of of, of concern. Uh, we haven't heard nearly as much from the president as we have from the former president. Hey, Jamie, how are you doing? I'm well. Sorry, I just had a power outage. That's oh, why you lost me for a moment. Sorry, man. Good. No, no, I'm sorry. That's that's just the reality. No, so listen, I've, I've kind of teed this up for you because I know you're one of the few people who's talking about Iswatini, there seems to be like a blanket, either disinterest or a, a, a real concerted misinformation campaign when it comes to Iswatini. You obviously are speaking to people in that country too. You're speaking to people you know in this country, and there are lots of dissidents in this country. We may even have the king living here in Johannesburg at the moment. Who knows? Um, what can you tell us about the situation, and what can you tell us about your opinion on the situation? Well, I mean, to put it bluntly, the first thing we need to understand is the real context of what is going on in this. Yeah. We have effectively the monarchy, which is using its military to sustain its power at a moment where pro-democracy protesters are actually trying to undergo a revolution to achieve a democratic model of governance. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where we are in terms of the process, um, you know, in Eswatini. So that's number one. Number two, we know uh, for a fact that uh, the army has used tactics um, that violate the African Charter for Human and People's Rights. Um, yes. They've shut down the internet. They've killed civilians. They've um, incarcerated activists uh, unduly and unlawfully. And um, they have basically behaved in whatever manner they deemed, um, you know, legitimate to make sure that they could keep the king in power, to make sure that uh, they could suppress the pro-democracy movements and the pro-democracy moment. As you know, uh, these revolutionary moments do happen almost spontaneously. Mm. And um, the African Charter recognizes people's legitimate right to um, rise up, fight, 
uh, against an, a regime that they consider oppressive. Uh, and we are all clear that a monarchy is not an elected uh, yeah. governance structure. It's an inherited governance structure, which is why the French did away with it. It's why the English did away with it. And it's why multiple systems across the world moved away from these monarchy-based systems so- where one person, by virtue of birth, I look, uh, you know, aggre- aggregates all the benefits. Absolutely, and and I think it's it's bizarre that there are only two left in Africa, one in Morocco and one in Swaziland. But it seems to me that this fiefdom, which the king of Swaziland has been able to rule by decree for the longest time, hasn't really bothered people that much. They've mostly kind of just shrugged their shoulders mm. and said, "Yeah, yeah, this is part of what we have." Why is it not getting commensurate amounts of outrage? In South Africa, from ordinary South Africans, why do we not care? This is a neighboring country. In fact, it's a country yeah. that hugely depends on us. Um, they, they couldn't, they would not be able to survive if it weren't for uh, borders with South Africa that were open, trade that was open, um, the kinds of, re- of relations that they have with our government. If, if our government said, guys, this is not acceptable, they'd be in a real situation. They'd have to make some very hard choices. But it seems the king is happier to turn guns on ordinary citizens than he is to um, to be brought to book by our own government. Why are we as South Africans, A, so apathetic about it? And again, I'm going to reiterate this. If I sound like a broken record, please forgive me. But why is our media so nonchalant about it? Like it's not a big thing. They're not paying any attention to it. Yeah, so I think I'll answer the questions um, in a structure because there are three different interest groups that I think we need to delineate and look at uh, mm-hmm. separately. Number one is the general public. Number two is the media. And number three is the actual government and its foreign policy response. Mm. So when you start with the general public, what you'll find is that um, there's a lot of uh, shared nationality between Eswatini and South Africa. Right. There are a lot of um, Baswazi living in South Africa. There are many places where the language actually is, is quite uh, prominently spoken. There's a lot of grassroots and on the ground concern. I'm yet to find any citizen, civilian or person who says, oh, I saw those videos of the army shooting young boys and I don't care about that. It doesn't move me one way or another. So I think that what you'll find is the public that is aware of it, um, whether through social media, through proximity to the issue or through just being interested in African affairs, that public actually is genuinely concerned about this particular topic. What what I think you'll find at a media level is that this actually happened almost at an opportune time uh, for King Swati III because there was a lot of local noise um, that would have distracted even a, a media that was very aggressively trying to pursue this particular issue. Right. So what you'll find is that because of the two constitutional court uh, judgments, the drama in Gandla and several other local issues that mm. basically sucked up all the oxygen because all that everyone wanted to hear about around the clock was in Gandla, 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 Gandla. And unfortunately, that then took away the opportunity to educate those who are not necessarily abreast with this topic Mm. on the details of the topic, the longevity of the crisis, and the economic and social political risks that exist for the whole region as a result of this crisis. At a a policy level, you ask me what I think ought to be done. I agree with you that um, South Africa has a large amount of influence in the region and specifically on, uh, you know, countries such as Eswatini and Lesotho and even Zimbabwe and Mozambique. And my view is that when you are a democracy, when you have constitutional principles that are entrenched in your constitution, 
principles such as life, principles such as uh, liberty and certain freedoms that we think are very important to protect, freedom of speech, political freedoms, um, freedom uh, from being incarcerated wrongly. All of these freedoms are really entrenched and underscored by the Constitution. This is the value system that um, you know entrenches the democracy. When you are the custodian of those values, I actually believe that there's a moral duty to use um, whatever influence you can to try to spread those particular values in areas where they don't exist, especially if they are absent oppresses people. So that's that's a moral point that I that I think I think if 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 you have a value and you uphold that value. You can't go into the playground and play with people who don't share that value or, or, or take any role. So, but beyond that, there is a legitimate and direct harm that exists when there's instability in your region. If there's terrorism in Mozambique, mm-hmm. if there's a youth protesting and burning things in Eswatini, if there's a military brutal dictatorship in, in Zimbabwe, the outcomes of that are that many people will opt out of those unstable um, impoverished areas and will take um, great pains to cross and go into places which have values that they believe in, economic opportunities that they think they can access, even though they're accessing scraps. We've seen people, you know, get frozen, uh, flying from Nigeria to the United Kingdom. We've seen people, you know, travel from West Africa and East Africa through Libya, through a war zone, get into boats that are likely to sink only on the mere hope that they can reach Turkey and possibly reach the, 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 the United Kingdom and other countries like that. People have gotten frozen in the back of storage container trucks, mm. simply mm-hmm. trying to get to uh, better countries. What is, the, what, is the, what is the lesson there? The incentives that exist at a human level, when you now have instability, poverty, violence, and all of these things are so great that you do have a migration pressure that is created. Yeah. So even if someone says, I don't think there's a moral duty, I don't think that person can also say, I don't do think that we won't be affected by this Jamie, particular issue. So even though there is a moral duty, I, I would say South Africa has been very consistent in their non-participation. I mean, we watched Zimbabwe go to pot and nothing mm. was done about it. And what's happening in Mozambique, there has been no intervention from the South African government. So South Africa has been mm. consistent with their, with their foreign policy of not participating and not intervening. Why are you Except surprised Except for when we that? intervened in Lesotho um, yeah. <laughs> that one time. But we that, did do an intervention. It was sanctioned by Nelson Mandela. And it was effective. And I think that we need to reconsider because what has happened, and I think I didn't answer one of the other questions which is attached to this, is why do African leaders not have urgency with these issues? Number one, it's because of this chummy boys club that has been created at a diplomatic level. This idea that because we were all comrades and we're all fighting against, you know, colonialism and apartheid, therefore... There's no responsibility to call you can out. I, can I just interject there that that, that doesn't just happen mm. on an international, at a, at a summit level between presidents. It also happens within the country. I mean, we saw even Becky Tele prevaricating yeah. about whether or not he was going to arrest Jacob Zuma. You know, none of these guys actually take their job very seriously. It's more important for them to be in with their friends. And I see that happening in, in, in the Swazi situation because – we know the people are actually suffering. They have been suffering for years. That's undeniable. And even if yeah. you don't care about that and you're just practical, as a government, you have to make some tough decisions. They don't want to make tough decisions against their friends. 
Yeah, and it's a real issue because um, it then leads to the outcomes that I think everyone can identify as being clear. I'll tell you, I used to um, uh, host a little section of a, of a Africa podcast mm. on, a, on, on one of the other stations, and we were talking about the terror threat in Mozambique, I think, two yeah. years ago, Yes. Um, before there was yeah. any uh, of, of the incidents that happened last year and this year. Um, so, so I mean, I'll be in that conversation and say, I don't know why no one is worried that now we have a legitimate terror threat in SADC and it's not an issue that we've had to deal with for a very long time. And we know what the impact of that can be. We've seen in the Sahel region, we've seen with Somaliland, Somalia and Kenya, what terror can do in, 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 in a region which is already fragile. So, I mean, considering how long some of these red flags and signs have been and the writing's been on the wall, I mean, um, the literature, the, the political science literature on Esotini has been calling it the slow and ignored crisis. I think for decades now, people have been trying to put it on the radar. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's quite frustrating to witness uh, the approach that is taken at a foreign policy level because of this boys club, this revolutionary um, WhatsApp group, and this idea that simply because a nation has sovereignty, that therefore means you must look away in all instances because sovereignty supersedes all things. But it's the state that has sovereignty and the state is 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 held by the people. You know, it's not the politicians that have sovereignty. So if the people are now legitimately trying to wrest back power that they gave um, to politicians, it's the role of regional players to make sure that those people can have their legitimate aspirations re-expressed through the democratic instruments of the state. Because if you simply say, well, Mugabe has sovereignty, mm. and you can clearly see that he no longer has the support of the will of, 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 of the mass of the people. And it's, it's, it's ascertainable in many instances yeah, to be able to determine that, listen, this needs test. to now be sure. resolved. Mm. Jamie, um, just, just mm. I, I know Pumi's got questions too. Just, just from my side, um, you, uh, give us the 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 short version of your uh, thoughts on what happened in Gandla. We can't pretend that that's not the biggest story that people want to hear from from commentators and analysts like you. What's your what's your takeaway on that whole situation? He's he's supposedly in jail at the moment, handed himself over at the at the eleventh hour. Um, do you have any any insights into how all of this was handled and how we should proceed going forward? Well, I mean, I think I'll tell you that this is a victory for two things, right? At the at the very outset, number one, it's a victory for the concept of the rule of law, and number two, it's a victory for the concept of constitutional supremacy. So, why am I saying it's a victory for the rule of law? Because the fundamental principle of the rule of law is that we no longer have kings, and we, we we're not going to be ruled by mobs either. So, mm -hmm. because we don't have kings, and we're not going to be ruled by mobs, we're all going to be ruled by a common standard of rules, and those rules will apply equally to all, without fear, without favor. So, clearly, when there has been a contravention of a rule, and that has been determined by a court, uh, it, it's important then for that law to be seen to be applied, even when that person is is important, even when they're a VIP uh, in society. So I think in terms of looking at constitutional um, supremacy, in, in terms of looking at rule of law as mm -hmm. two, two very important interests, I think that there are two clear wins in, 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 the, in, the, in the goal basket, if you were to say, for those things. And I think long-term, those are healthy um, uh, points that need to be made uh, by any democracy that, listen, 
you can go to jail if you're a president. You can go, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the ruling of a court cannot be ignored or arbitrarily applied, etc. Or even you can't game the system to stay out of prison. So that is the legal um, view that I have on this particular matter. I'm not so sure if the social um, dynamics are such that there's going to be a win. What I'm seeing now is that this has now become a culture war moment. And the reason why I see it being a culture war moment is because there are multiple dynamics in the societal um, engagement with this issue. What do, what do I mean by that? There are racial dynamics, there are tribal dynamics, mm. there are class dynamics, and all of those things uh, play into each other in different ways. So depending on which dynamic you prioritize, you may come out of this whole process feeling less than enthused, even though you appreciate that Jacob Zuma uh, behaved in a very, very, you know, uh, reckless, um, offensive, uh, stubborn manner. I think that it becomes a culture war issue before. I think if if we break it down, there are some people who are concerned about respectability. Globally, yeah. yes, and it's not a, it's not a South African concept. It's not a traditional concept. People will say George Bush may have done something in Iraq, but America is not going to arrest George Bush. Uh, the British will say Tony Blair may have done something that we don't agree with. We're not going to arrest Tony Blair. You know, this is why you sometimes find that Bill Clinton, George Bush, even Barack Obama, all of these um, you know national leaders of their home countries get treated with a certain uh, um, a pattern uh, of respectability. Approach. Yeah. Yes, and and part of that, even though we don't wish to acknowledge it, is because states want to save face on the global stage. They don't want to necessarily have Putin and you know, um, uh, you know, the Chinese saying, "Ah, oh, look at how weak these guys are. Their leaders just get arrested every two seconds or whatever." So to put to foster themselves, I'm just saying. That also works only in two ways. I mean, you you make the mm. uh, the mention of Putin. He had mm. a very similar situation with Boris Yeltsin, mm. and they came mm. to an amicable agreement. If you think about mm-hmm. Nixon, yeah. an amicable mm-hmm. agreement, it works both ways. So both parties have yeah. to be willing. And here we have one party that was absolutely adamant that he would not take the fall. So, Well, you know... You could be right, uh, and and I'm I'm not sure what conversations would obviously have happened uh, behind the scenes around like you know it's, it's it's the guy did step down. Do you know what I mean? So maybe for 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 the people who support Zuma, that was the fall, and this yeah. other stuff is now vindictive because if you if you then say yeah. step down before your term ends, and the guy says okay, shut. And then you then, you know, um, do other things uh, politically to marginalize his power and influence. People will say, okay, shut, you're in charge now. But then yeah. if you then say, now we're sending you to jail, uh, you know, and we're sending you to jail under this dramatic set of events, I'm not um, sure that we will be able to move on from the cultural dynamics. And I think that's what's playing out uh, in real time for us all to see. And part of it is this respectability stuff. But it's not the only thing that is is here, right? Because other people have a view around justice, which is not anchored in legalistic analysis. Because sometimes what we'll have is you'll get a panel of lawyers coming in saying, well, 
this is the precedent, this is the standard, this is the rule, this is what happened, 1994, constitutional democracy, forget all the rest, let's move on. And then they, they forget that a special law was made to actually treat people outside of a criminal process. It was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission Act. A law was made to make sure certain people would never face criminal consequences for their actions. Mm -hmm. And people still remember that. In a constitutional democracy, you remember that um, mm -hmm. one of the political parties took that issue um, to the constitutional court and said, actually, we don't think that this uh, TRC process should be done because we want criminal sanctions for people who uh, perpetrated crimes during uh, apartheid. I can't remember right now which political party it was, but the name of the case is this political party versus president or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and it was about the TRC. So what I'm trying to put across is there are people who are not going to look at this exclusively from the, the legal lens. And what they are going to see is that certain companies contributed to apartheid, international and local companies, they're going to know that there are certain key players in the apartheid regime who are members of the Nationalist Party, uh, brazenly racist, brazenly pushing forward for the suppression, repression and oppression of Africans um, within the apartheid regime, who now enjoy dignity, they have platforms, they have Nobel Peace Prizes, some of them, and those people are going to look at this and say, You've got two presidents who I can consider, well, or three, if you want well, to think about Botha. And some of these got treated one way, but, and this uh, other guy, he got a different consequence. That's a very valid comparison to make, because I do think, you know, we, we tend to look at these things from, from uh, a, a very tribal point of view. Like people, are, they can't help it. We always, we defer to this. But at the same time, I'm really bothered by the fact that there's also a class of people, these politicians, whether it's Jacob Zuma or... Boita or De Clark or any of those, the politicians get kid glove treatment. And the rest of us, I mean, if you did something wrong, Jamie, there's no chance that you would negotiate, then you'd go to court. I mean, all of this costs huge amounts of money, which only politicians have. And mm. usually they're using our money anyway. Um, and then you know the police mm. commissioner, then you know the minister of police, then you have a negotiation with this one. This one comes for tea. We know how this works. These politicians get a different treatment to the rest of us. And maybe that also pisses people off. Even if you are, let's say, anti de Klerk and pro-Zuma or pro-Zuma and anti Boeta or whatever mm -hmm. it might be, what really is the distinction here is that the politicians still get better treatment no matter what side they're on than any of us ordinary folks. Mm. Look, I think that that is a moot point and most people would agree that we, when you're dealing with these issues, you do see difference in access to legal systems. I mean, who can afford a team of lawyers? No ordinary citizen would be able to afford any of the litigation that was involved in many of these processes. And uh, that's that's a given. I, I wouldn't even contest that myself. Um, all, all I'm pointing out is that th there's going to be here, I think, a protracted culture moment. Mm. And you know, sometimes things, they sizzle, yes. and sometimes they are a slow cook. Right. So I'm not sure here, we may see in terms of instability, in terms of political violence, in terms of ethno-nationalism, because I'm almost seeing a certain smugness, um, but maybe I'm only looking at yep. certain areas. Yep. Yep. And that smugness to me seems pre premature because there were a series of events that led to Wednesday playing out the way that it did. It almost looks as if not, no one in the Zuma camp expected um, them to follow through. Everyone thought that they had shown a strong amount of force, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It almost felt as if Wednesday 
was very far removed from what we saw on Saturday and Sunday. So I'm not I'm not sure that all of the people who are of the viewpoint that they were going to, you know, fight for this guy and, you know, uh, give their lives for this guy. All of a sudden, none of them care about this issue and this is the end of it. Yeah. It may not be that they can do anything about this arrest, but it may be a re-emergence of certain ideas in certain quarters and, and we know ideas which we've tried to reduce we, we, we know South that Africa. we know that kwazulu natal is a a hotbed for this kind of division and that that when that starts mm. to happen it does spill over into the rest of the country jamie i'm going to i'm going to let you go unless you've got anything else you want to ask for me and then we can get no, to I'm, is that, is, I'm right. very yeah 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 thank you for your time jamie it's, always, <laughs> Wait, it's you seem to have a, a lingering question though for me <laughs> no I don't. I really don't. I mean, it's it's fascinating to listen. It's fascinating to listen to. No. Yeah, you you. No, you, thank, thanks you so much. You for articulated having me. very um, well. Obviously, these, these these are my views, um, and, and you know, people may may not necessarily always agree with them. That's just how I'm seeing things as they play out. Thanks so much for having me. Well, very good. Thank you, Jamie. Now, uh, Pums, I know that you have had uh, quite a lot to say about the story already, but we're going to perhaps go over the ground with a little more detail and some some real analysis and interest here. We're going to speak to a man called Sipo Shezi. Let me tell you who he is, just in case you don't already know. He was the Director General of Public Works in Nelson Mandela's government. Um, he founded the non-racial political organization called the DCO Matuani Youth League in Edendale in Peter Maritzburg, which, of course, played an integral role in the formation of the UDF many years ago. He was educated at the University of Natal at um, Lancaster, Sussex and John Hopkins University, Johns Hopkins University, respectively. He is a published author on politics and international relations. And we're going to talk to him this morning as someone who really does understand this stuff from a point of view that many people don't. Uh, Sipo Shezi will be with us in just a moment or two. But before we get to that, um, people are asking, what do you think? And if they didn't hear the first hour, Pumi was up until just after midnight <laughs> last night watching all the drama unfold. Just give, uh, give everybody oh, a little gosh. insight as to what you were thinking while you were watching all of this happen. I, I know for sure that there was no plan or strategy on the side of Jacob Zuma. I think all along they were hoping that this would fizzle, that he would get, he, he, he would get, get, get to get away with it. You know, that the, the threat of bearing their teeth, the threat of having all those people out there. Mm. But even on the weekend, I, I remember saying to a friend of mine, all the people that were there on Saturday and Sunday were there on Saturday and Sunday. On mm-hmm. Monday, they had to go back to work. Yep. On Monday, they right. had to go back. So, so, so even the number of people that you saw hanging out around the gates of Gandla last night were a tiny fraction of the people that were there. I think there was a a trying to make people feel like there's going to be some huge tribal schism that's going to happen here. And none of those things came to fruition. None of those things came to fruition. So, so I mean, for do, me, do I just see, think... Do you see this in the way that Jamie sees it, that that this could be a, a watershed moment and that there could be all kinds of new divisions brought in? It could be one of those those uh, those moments where South Africa has to take stock of itself and we divide along uh, ethnic, tribal or party lines again? Or is it just the ultimate collapse of the ANC, which you've been predicting for a very long time? I think we're seeing the ANC at the end of it. It's the end of the ANC. 
I really do. And this is how it's going to end with this division between Jacob Zuma and, and the rest of the party. I don't think it's going to end because of Jacob Zuma and the division of the rest of the party. I think it's simply because it has been a long time coming. Right. There's so many things that have been happening. And I mean, I think the long time coming is people who have put themselves ahead of the program of the party, people who've put themselves ahead of the program of the country. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing the fruits of that harvest, which people, whether it was Jacob Zuma and the Guptas or Pulemabe or Esma Khashule, mm-hmm. or, you, you know, I mean, you can carry on naming these people. And that's that's what it is. They have put their own interests ahead of the interests of the party. Well, Rowan's and saying, that's what we're seeing. Uh, Rowan, who's listening to us, is saying that this man was found in contempt of court, plain and simple. He must face the, the, the trial for his corruption and fraud. And this, and this comment from Rowan is even for mass genocide. Look, I don't know about genocide, but certainly the fraud and corruption and what might have resulted from that is definitely in his hands. But that's not what this arrest was about. People must also not try to conflate issues here. He's going to jail because he's in contempt of court for not appearing at the Zondo Commission. That's essentially what it is. And his lawyers did him no, no favors in this respect, or maybe they were just following his instructions by being as obstructionist whether he as was possible. Badly advised, no. Whether he was badly advised or if he is a bad client, yes. whatever, the two of, whatever it is of the two of those things, I think he was, and, and I think at the end there, even on, I think it was on Sunday that he came out to see the masses, you could see in the eyes of the man that he, he really has his back against the wall. Has his back against the wall. Last night, I did not see the whole um, interview between JJ Dabane Mm. and Mzwanele Manye. Mm. But again, you know, Mzwanele making bad decisions, Mm. always jumping on as the women and children. Somebody said he he jumps on the sinking ship as the women and children are being lifted off. (laughs) You know, whether it's (laughs) ANN7, whether it's ATM, now he's the spokesperson of Jacob Zuma. The whole thing is just. Yeah, it's if, a mess. If there was ever anybody, if there's ever anybody who really makes, I mean, you think Carl Niehaus is bad, but honestly, Jimmy Money, like that guy, can't make a good decision, right? It's unbelievable. And and just you know, and then what it also has laid bare is you see why, as a professional, mm. you should keep your political <laughs> your political leanings to yourself. I mean, the whole time we're watching. Um, Dalimpov be the black excellence, as they say it, that is representing. And at the same time, this is a person who is part of a party that has been calling for the jailing of Jacob Zuma, for the bringing to book of Jacob Zuma for years. And now he's the person trying to keep him out of jail. I'm just like, this thing is so messy. You know, this last night, seeing Julius Malema Mm. tweeting that this is a sad day. Oh, right. So make up your mind. You were the one who was calling for him to pay back the money to go to jail. You said you even said there's that famous clip going around of, of Julius to he's going to go to jail. Now he's going. It's a sad day. Like I can, I can tell you the EFF and in the persons that you've just mentioned, Dalim Pofu and, and uh, Julius Malema. It seems to me that they're posturing 
now makes them almost incredible. And I don't mean incredible as in fantastic. I mean incredible as in not having very much credibility when it comes to their actual point of view on things. Because these two men have been vacillating between supporting this guy. And look, I understand that Dalim Pofu does. And those flip-flops are Vianas. <laughs> I understand that Dalim Pofu is an advocate and that he also represents his clients. And sometimes he doesn't agree with his clients. But in this case, he's played out so many cards that we actually don't know whether to take him seriously or not. All right, it seems like Sipo Shezi's here, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Yes. Hello, Mr. Shezi. How are you? Sipo, how are you? I'm okay, Gareth. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much. For I'm your... okay, Gareth. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for being on the show this morning and, and for, for joining us to talk about this obviously huge news story. Yeah, I must say, I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I must say that I'm, I'm, I don't feel very comfortable being on the show with you. And pull me because I know that uh, the two of you are troublemakers, and I'm one. Well, you are not a troublemaker. No, uh, we, we. If you're the if you're the troublemaker, if you're the troublemaker, then we need more of you in 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 our world. So who knew that we'd been asking for more trouble? Maybe Pumi and I are onto something. So let's just talk about this whole situation. What what is your what is your view on what's just happened in the last twelve hours? What's your view on what happens from here? We had another analyst on just now who was saying he sees this as a as a moment of division. Pumi said just now she sees it as the, as the as the moment of final destruction for the ANC. And there are very many varied opinions across the board about what's actually happened here. What is your take? Oh, as I ask him that, he he he's just gone. Did we lose him? No, nah, we've just lost him. Damn. I do so want to go to these. Do you think that? Now that Jacob Zuma, while we try and get him back online, hmm. do you think that now Jacob Zuma is gone, we're finally going to see the VPS scandal take care of Julius and his crowd? I don't think so, Pums. I don't think that's uh, there's any <laughs> there's no political urgency there. Ah, oh, here he is. Okay, sorry, Sipo, we lost you. You're back. So, what's your what's your take on all of this? I'm back. Yeah. Yeah. But I've done last couple of hours uh, looking at the level of euphoria you know in the country about the developments that have happened you know and I'm not excited at all you know I think that we are beginning to see um, the commencement of a, a major political crisis in the country um, and I think that is reminiscent of what uh, it's going to be reminiscent of what we saw in the mid eighties into the into the into into the into the nineties. You know, I mean all that it's happening now. Some people can be excited about the fact that, you know, we're seeing the triumph of constitutionalism, we're seeing the triumph of the rule of law, mm. you know, and the scary thing for me is that it's all happening in a vacuum. You know, uh, it's happening in a situation where there is a serious leadership vacuum in the country. And I dare say that most people are even scared of talking about it. And when I looked at what happened uh, on Saturday, with all, again, the excitement that was going on, I mean, I looked at it and I was saying, not all this is happening uh, in the context of, you know, just political vacuum, you know, just a leadership vacuum, you know, uh, in the country. In the context of KZN, it, it expressed itself, you know, much more pronouncedly than anywhere else. Uh, in the context of the leadership of the country, you know, it, it happened, you know. I mean, so, so Sipo, first of all, I mean, do you think, do you think this whole thing could have been handled better? Is there a different way you would have liked things to unfold? It, yes, Gareth, you know, 
for a very long time, I've been saying, you know, to people, what is the issue that we're dealing with in this country at the moment? Um, we're dealing with a, a situation where political problems, particularly political problems in relation to the ANC, are being outsourced to, you know, uh, various, you know, um, constitutional structures, you know, um, whether it's the judiciary or some form of, you know, other chapter nine institutions or some kind of commissions. And my view has been that the only way to manage these things is that, uh, in particular, the ruling party of the NC must uh, actually manage these things in-house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the same thing applies uh, with reference to uh, to the Zuma issue and everything that uh, that surrounds it. You know, even if at the end of the day you have to say you allow the legal process to kick in. But I think that there is some serious political management that should definitely Well, done. doesn't it then uh, fall? Yeah, I mean, can't we can't we place the responsibility for that squarely at the feet of Jacob Zuma? I mean, if he'd handled and conducted himself better in respect of this, then perhaps they wouldn't have had to go to these lengths. But this is not a, a political issue now. I mean, there are political ramifications, but essentially it's a legal issue. He and his legal team have put him in the way of the law. And we cannot have a country where the law is disregarded just because there are dangerous political uh, consequences, surely. Can I just throw one question to you? You know, what would you say if Jacob Zuma were to say now, I didn't go to the commission because uh, I was protecting the ANC? What would you say? You know, uh, what would you say if Jacob Zuma says, you know, notwithstanding all the drama, sort of the matter is, I, I, I really mean it to say, I don't mind going to jail. You know, I've just gone to jail right now. And I really meant it, you know. But the reason why I didn't want to go to the commission is because I was protecting the ANC. Then you, then, know, then you, take, the then you must day, take responsibility you know, if, for if your, your decisions. And if his decisions have, have taken him to jail, of, then that's his problem. Of, of, I want to talk about the leadership. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about the issue of a leadership vacuum, you know, and you, you made a, a, a very chilling for me <laughs> proposition that we are in the same situation as we were in the 80s leading mm. up into the 90s, which saw unprecedented turmoil in our social fabric. You know, people in KZN, it happened much more than anywhere else in the country, and it really only became national news when we saw Buibadong, when we saw what happened in the East Rand. And then it was ANC versus uh, IFP, as it were, and a third force. And now it looks like it's an ANC versus ANC. Even when Mangosutu comes out in his statement to say this is not a threat to the Zulu people, this is a threat to one individual. But if there is a leadership vacuum, there's a new king in KZN who is for all intents, very, it, it appears he is not very strong because he's not keeping his regiments in line. There is, in the a- ANC and KZN, ructions. And, and in the ANC, as a, as a political party, as the ruling party, there are factions, and we can see this. Is this going to lead, in your view, to something similar to what we did see in the early 90s, in the end of the 80s and the early 90s, where there is instability and violence where people are dying on the streets. You know, Pumi, I think that uh, that's really where we're headed if this situation is not managed properly. Let me just expatiate on that, you know, and, 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 and recast a bit 
the previous experience. You know, prior to um, the last uh, round of constitutional negotiations in the country, the, the, the case at and in particular the Midlands, didn't want the ANC to go into those negotiations. And in order to deal with that, Nelson Mandela went down to Kitimarisburg in the Natal Midlands. He called all the ANC leaders, including Harry Kuala, Jacob Zuma, and everybody else, and said to them, this is the reason why we have to do it. He spent about three hours giving a lecture to that leadership. And at the end of that leadership, he was with Watrasi Sulu, and he said, do you agree that this is what we needed to do? And everybody in the boardroom said, yes, Mr. President, this is what we need to do. The point I'm making, Puli, is that, you know, at that level, you would have expected that to have happened. So you would have expected, you know, and the leader of the ANC to go down to KZN, call everybody, call all the key leaders of the ANC and say, listen, uh, this is what is about to happen. We have seen the picture unfold. Unfortunately, JZ did not play ball with the judiciary, and this is what is going to happen. And therefore, I expect you to respect that position. That did not happen. And that's such a good point. When, uh, he, he's, can he his, do it anyway? His silence has been deafening. I mean, we haven't heard a sound from the president. He said he's looking over the, the court's ruling. I mean, there's not much to look over. It's not complicated. No, Garrett, there is not much to look for. It's not complicated. But over and above that, beyond being the president of the country, the president is the president of the ruling party. He's the president of the ANC. Mm. You know, in a situation where the provincial leader of the ANC in KZN is weak as he is, we would have expected the president to actually chip in and take a hands-on. That he did not do. That is very worrying. You know, if you look at how Chief Mangobu Sutelezi has come across, I'm still sitting back and say, given the dynamics in the Zulu royal family right now, uh, are we not seeing the same situation that we see, with, that we saw, you know, uh, in the mid-80s, where what Chief Mangobusu Tilizu was saying was not necessarily a holistic view of the Zulu royal family? And it's highly likely that could be the case, mm. you know, um, right. You know, um, so, you know, that's where I'm coming from, uh, you know, um, from when I say that this thing is happening under conditions of, uh, you know, leadership vacuum in the country. And it's, 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 a, it's a very worrying phenomenon. Can the ANC come back from this, do you think, with the leadership that they currently have? You know, objectively, you know, I have got serious doubts that the ANC is going to, you know, uh, come back from this. You know, um, I've said to a number of people that you cannot caricature the ANC without taking into account the significance of uh, KZN. And right now, I can say without any fear of contradiction that it's going to be an uphill battle for the current leadership of the ANC to pull together the ANC in KZN. And if the ANC in KZN is not together, you know, I, I, I wonder what that is going to mean for the stability of the country.
You know, Those Sipo, are cold. You know, Sipo, there's this, you've just highlighted something that's such a big problem. And I think people aren't looking at the big picture here because we're all so en- engrossed in the Jacob Zuma story. And it's, you know, he's like Donald Trump. He, he kind of, he sucks up all the oxygen and then all it is is about him. But we're looking at KwaZulu Natal at the moment. We've got a weak provincial leader in KZN, as you've pointed out. We've got a weak president in terms of his getting involved in KZN. We've got Jacob Zuma, who is going to manipulate this to his own ends, even if it's symbolic and even if going to jail is for him a a, a card that he can play because he's done this before. He's a very clever man. We've got the Zulu royal family who are in some disarray because we've had you know a huge amount of tragedy there in a very short space of time. And we've got a country and a, and a province in KZN that's under lockdown rules. So people are desperate. Things are very, very fraught. Um, there are huge amounts of, of, of consternation and difficulty happening all over the province. Who is going to step up and take control of KwaZulu-Natal? It's up for grabs at the moment, isn't it? What, Gary, let me just simply add to that, you know, Gary, that you also have got um, at a national leadership people who are in deep trouble because of all sorts of malfeasance that they've been involved with who are going to rally behind Jacob Zuma for their own expediency. And they are looking at KZN as a seedbed on which they're going to launch themselves. You also have in KZN local leadership of the ANC which is misinterested about what is currently going on in terms of whether it is wrong or right all that they are interested in they are just simply positioning themselves because they want to be counselors and those who feel that they are being elbowed they are actually killing each other you know uh, so that is the level of instability that we have and to reinforce the point that we just picked up on, you know, uh, Gareth, is that it's not just simply the strategy that you can turn your back, you know, um, on. You know, it has got serious ramifications for the country. Uh, so, yes, uh, you're right, KZN is up to crap, you know, and at the moment. <laughs> uh, the unfortunate thing is that we haven't seen any serious political force that can actually come in and take advantage of that and harness this kind of situation. So it goes back to the issue of political vacuum that I've been seeing. Whilst everybody's excited about what is going on, you know, I sit here and actually say we are headed for a serious trap. I have been in a lot of a lot of trouble with a lot of our listeners because I keep saying that we have no opposition parties. You say that KZN, so I hear the view that the ANC machinations there are many people trying to position themselves trying to use the the disarray in kzn as a a political launchpad to get themselves to the top of the party list but i wonder then is it also up for grabs for other political parties does the da have an opportunity there does the eff have an opportunity there could the ifp make a comeback what I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that all these parties, without exception, you know, uh, with the ANC at the apex of the moment, they don't have the opportunity to actually mold, you know, um, the case at and political scenario and take advantage of it. My view is that it's actually going to take a new sober voice to actually do that. 
you know, um, and 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 in my opinion, that sober voice will have to talk about the interest of South Africa Inc. You know, uh, and therefore begin to really, really, really talk about you know the mobilization of civil society, you know, uh, from the grassroots, you know, uh, not from the boardrooms, you know, and that is what, in my opinion, is even uh, you know uh, the protect uh, South Africa democracy movement, you know, and it, it will not be in a position to try to mobilize that situation. You need a different, you know, uh, kind of player who really understands the dynamics of that environment. Does the tribalism that we have been seeing a lot of, does it really hold as much water as people seem to think? There, there has been a lot of, it's the Zulus that are on the side of Jacob Zuma seeing the, the 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 regiments showing up for Jacob Zuma and and seeing that it is in the seat of KZN, you know, all of this. Does the tribalism that is rearing its head here have um something for us to to look at and be worried about? Especially because South Africa is a very, you know, very divided still. Politically, racially and tribally. For me, why did Majiba leave the ANC behind when he got out of prison and went straight to the royal family and went straight to Chief Mangosuchi Mutelezi? The ANC only paced Majiba to do that, but otherwise the ANC nationally and also in the province was not necessarily in favor of that. You know, Madiba did that because he understood the importance of the tribal factor in the South African political milieu. And when you talk about the importance of the tribal factor in the South African political milieu, you need to situate the centrality, you know, and of, you know, and in the Zulu and the Nguni people right at the heart of that, you know. So it's it's not something to be taken lightly. You know, it is it is it is, it is something to be taken very 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 seriously. You know, you're you the know? you're the first um, person, Sipo. You're the first person who's actually acknowledged that. I'm so glad Pumi asked the question because most people are too nervous even to ask the question. You know, we play this game in South Africa where we pretend we're the rainbow nation some of the time. We also pretend the tribal differences don't exist. We also pretend that people aren't tribal. And then suddenly we're at the same time thrilled to see all the culture of the Zulu kingdom on display with the monarch being enthroned and the old monarch being buried and all of these things. And people take uh, both of these points of view and they, they manage to hold them both in their heads at the same time without acknowledging that there might be some dissonance there. And I think it's such an important point. Like the, the, the Zulu nation, because it is a nation, is a very important part of the South African political scene. And they must be taken seriously or or you ignore them at your peril. I remember that the biggest issue leading up to our elections back in 1994 wasn't about, you know, racial harmony. It wasn't about uh, uh, opposition parties in general. It was about the IFP and the ANC. And the IFP in that case was a stand-in, really, for the interests of the Zulu people. And it, that was the most important and significant political activity that was going on prior to our elections. We mustn't underplay this and pretend everything's okay when under the blanket there's a whole lot of nonsense. You know, Garrett, you're so right. I mean, again, just going back to Madiba to illustrate my point. Why does Madiba makes 
Chief Mangobusuchu Buchelezi, the actual president. When it was such a sensitive issue at that stage for him to do. And when Madiba had a whole range of people in that cabinet that he could have made them acting president, Madiba was doing that because he was actually consolidating this element. Once in the past, you know, people might say we successfully dealt with tribal chauvinism in our environment. I am saying now, apartheid is now gone. Mm. But, but, but Sipo, you've made me think of something. Can I ask you this then? Um, Jacob Zuma is, is one of the people who's claimed to have had a lot to do with making sure that there was a degree of harmony in KwaZulu-Natal, certainly in making sure that the ANC had a much more broad and wide range of support in, the, in, in, in KwaZulu-Natal. Do you believe that Jacob Zuma is still the man who can broker a kind of peace between the ANC and the rest of the country and the ANC and KwaZulu-Natal, and also between the various factions within KwaZulu-Natal as a Zulu man who occasionally claims to be one of the most traditional people that there is, who follows all the traditional rules, who you know, paid his respects to the, the monarchy in whichever way he has. But I don't know if, if he isn't also a creature of opportunity. How much of a role do you think he could still play and how much of that that power and responsibility has he assumed for himself without actually deserving it? No, I, I think my view that in that context, uh, Gareth, uh, I think that, you know, Jacob Zuma in that context is a spent force, you know, now, you know, and to be quite honest, to be brutally honest, I think that Jacob Zuma is himself right now, you know, whether intentionally or unintentionally, an expression of affection. Um, you know, so I think that his political capital in the context in which we are raising has become narrower and narrower. You know, my view is that you need a much more, you know, credible character, you know, um, to actually deal with that kind of aspect in case that Does anybody have that credibility at the moment? goes back to the issue I was raising for me, for me that uh, what is currently happening in KZN right now, it's happening in the context of a political vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that those that might have hoped that uh, somebody like, uh, for instance, uh, Zuelim Kize, you know, um, could, uh, you know, fit into that, uh, into that gap, you know, they must also realize that uh, also that political currency right now has gone under the bridge. You know, mm-hmm. and so you know, you know. Mm-hmm. I think we st- we still need to actually cross our fingers and pray twenty four seven that uh, history is going to deliver us that character that could do it. But the point I'm making is that it is not only KZN that needs that character. I think it is the country that needs that character yeah. because without the stability of the KZN, you know, you're not going to have the stability of the country. It sounds and that is where, in my opinion, we're headed. It sounds like the lyrics to a Bonnie Tyler song. We need a hero. We're holding out for a hero. And I don't know that that person's going to come. But Sipo Shezi, it's very good to have you on the show. Uh, Thank- absolutely. No, no, it's a great pleasure to host you. And I hope yeah, we'll, we'll right. see you again. You, you want to uh, throw in a last word? Yes. No, 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 no. Thank you very much. I was just simply saying that you put it very, very well. I think that what we really need in the country right now, uh, we need somebody to raise his hand. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and listen, if that person is the wrong person and people still rally behind him, 
That's that's our own fault. That's us as a people who must take the blame for for whatever happens. Of course, there are opportunities, but there are also opportunists, and the two don't always go together well for for whoever's on the receiving end, right, Pums? If you hear that, if you yep. hear that well, we need somebody to raise his hand. I have been saying it. We are the people that must must stand into the gap, guys. Every single one of us, we have something that we can give, and if we want our country to succeed, we all have to be part of it, and we all have to pay the price. Absolutely. All right, uh, Sipo, I'm going to I'm going to let you in, enjoy the rest of Thank your day. Thank you. Pumi, please enjoy the rest of your birthday, and we will see you um, tomorrow morning at six o'clock in the morning, bright and early. <laughs> Happy birthday, Pums. Bye. <laughs> Thanks, darling. Bye, everybody. Cheers. Bye, bye. Cliffcentral.com